Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. Hey all, welcome back, Startup Grind Global Podcast. This is Chris Jonu, and today I'm very proud to be hosting Sid Mofa, the Executive Director of the Draper Venture Network. And for those of you that don't know what that is and why I'm excited, um, the Draper Venture Network is this global network of um, venture capital funds, most notably Draper Associates in, in Silicon Valley, you know, Draper Spree in the UK, Draper Dragon in, in China, and another 20 to 30 of these funds around the world. And he kind of manages all of them and the relationship between each of them and ensures that, the, you know, deals are being shared and so on. So he has this incredibly unique perspective, this kind of macro view of all the trends that are happening around the world because it's, you know the, he sees what startups are coming through on a local level, on a regional level, and what's being invested in. And... Um, and, and the trends that are occurring, right? So I wanted to hear firsthand and share, you know, what he is seeing. Um, I also just super interested in his own journey. He was born in Zambia, educated in the UK, you know, makes it to Silicon Valley. Along the way, you know, works for Shell, the Ministry of Justice, becomes a Kaufman Fellow and lands in Silicon Valley and um, ends up with the Draper ecosystem. But, um, and he's also just such a lovely guy, a big ambassador for Africa Tech, um, still quite involved in Restless Development, Bongo Hive Technology Hub, and Able, Accelerating Black Leadership and Entrepreneurship. I'm sure you'll love the conversation as much as I did. Enjoy. Welcome, Sid. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Chris. Thank you for having me. Thank you for, for joining us. Um, Sid, you know, I've got to know you a little bit o- over the past year and I just wanted to um, you know, share your story and, and get your thoughts on you know, where the world's headed. But um, I, usually, I usually go back a little bit, kind of set the scene, give a bit of context to the audience. And um, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about your, about your childhood and your, and your education? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was born in Zambia. Uh, Zambia is a, a small country in southern Africa. I say small country; it's got about 15 million people, um, but it's, uh, it's it's actually quite large from an area perspective. Um, um, so I was born born there. Went to school there. I was first born of uh, of four kids: um, three boys and one girl. And my parents worked in the mining industry there. So the mining industry is the biggest uh, industry in Zambia. Um, my parents were um, working class that may work their way up to middle class um, in, in, in Zambia, ran, ran several businesses on the side all the time that they were working um, and, and, and did, did well with that. Um, yeah, so I, you know, and I, and I was privileged to, to be able to attend some of the, the best schools available to them because the, the mining company that they worked for 
um, um, put up some schools um, that I was able to, um, and my siblings to, to go to. Um, yeah, so I, I enjoyed growing up, growing up there. Um, after school, I'd, um, I'd made up my mind that I wanted to um, spread my wings a little bit and go and study somewhere else. Um, so my last, my last year of high school, um, I'd applied for colleges in the UK, in America, and uh, um, I was accepted into those colleges, but there was, there was really no, no way I was going to get to the colleges without some kind of scholarship. So I spent a lot of time applying for scholarships. Um, I actually spent uh, one, one week, um, this was my first experience of uh, um, going door to door, um, trying to sell something. I spent a week um, going and knocking, and I don't know how, how good this strategy was, but it's the only thing I knew to do. <laughs> I, went, I went to the, the, the busiest city in Zambia, Lusaka, and I'd go knock at the gate. Uh, and I'll talk to the security guard to um, tell them what I'm here for. I'm here, I'm looking for a scholarship and uh, I want to talk to the person who can offer me a scholarship. Um, I wasn't very successful with getting to talk to anybody and um, I kind of um, almost gave up on the idea of getting a scholarship and being able to, to study abroad. Um, but uh, thankfully, the, the, the mining company, again, that my parents worked for, they had a scholarship program. Um, they, they, they took 36 students every year, um, sponsored them through college um, in the US and in the UK uh, to study primarily engineering um, and, uh, and then come back and work in the mines. So it wasn't my number one option because what I really, really wanted to do was to become a doctor. Um, so that's, you know, I'd apply to all, all kinds of medical schools and I, 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 I that was my ambition. Um, but second, second on my priority list was to, to study abroad. So I, I, I figured, well, if I can get this scholarship, I could go and study abroad. And then later I can figure out how to you know, change and become you know, a medical student and become a doctor. Um, so I, I actually managed to get one of those scholarships um, uh, to go study chemical engineering at the University of Sheffield. Um, and that was a, you know, a great, great, great experience. It, it, I, I would say it, it kind of opened the world for me because um, all of a sudden there was a, a whole new world that was open to me that wasn't um, open before. Um, can, can, can I ask it? Because I, I usually, I've, I've, I've got to backtrack here because usually my first question is, was there a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? And you mentioned there was, you know, they're working in the mines, but they had some sort of, almost sound like some side hustles and I, and I'm also keen to hear about um you know how how um how no, um what's the word how encouraging they were of you applying for these universities uh-huh yeah great great questions um so my mom and dad were very very enterprising um I can't remember a time when they weren't running a business. Um, and I think, you know, part of that, they could have been content, I think, with just, you know, doing their jobs and, and so on, but they, they never were. Um, and part of that was also because they 
they basically took they they, they they valued education very very highly and they wanted their kids to get the best education possible um, and actually my dad kind of broke the mold by getting me into this school he had no business getting me into this school we lived in a in a mine township at the time and in order to do that what he had to do was he came back from work every day and he would spend time just teaching me um, they had, you know, the basic English language, and he was a great artist. So he would he would make these, um, he'd get these blank cards, and he would write things on one side, draw things on another side. So if I was if we were learning the letter D, he might, you know, have the letter D on one side, and then all the kinds of D words that you could draw. You draw a picture of a dog, a picture of a duck, and so on, and. He must have spent hours doing this because, you know, we, we would probably spend an hour together after, after work, you know, as much as I could handle as a what, five-year-old. Um, but what that did was um, it really distinguished me because when I went for the interviews for this school, where really at that time there weren't that many um, African kids, the school was designed for the kids of expats, working in Zambia in the mines, because there were a lot of experts at the time coming in to bring expertise for you know, building, building the mines. Zambia was a young country, recently um, independent from the British. Um, so that school was designed for them. Um, but he figured if he could get me um, very, very um, um, ready for that kind of um, school, then I stood a chance and um, I was able to actually ace the interviews. Um, and because I was so ready, um, I was able to actually become a top student at that school. Um, so all that to say, you know, they were both very, very enterprising. My dad was, he trained as a, um, a mechanical artisan. So he, 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 he knew how to fix things. Um, he could fix anything you put in front of him. And he would buy old cars um, and do them up, fix it and get all the you know, body work done and then sell it. So literally every six months to a year, we had a new car, you know, very different car. And, you know, as kids, all you care about is what does this car look like to my friends? And there were times when it's like, oh, no, he's got a, a Ford Bedford. I don't like this. But then, you know, within a year, he'd, he'd sell it and would have something else. And, and my mom would run all kinds of things. Um, um, she, she ran a hair salon out of our house. Um, she sold clothes, would buy and sell clothes from somewhere. Um, my mom and dad together ran a, a, a pirate taxi business. Um, and then that became minibuses. And, you know, so we would kind of learn about all the things that were happening. Um, you know, the minibus was in an accident. So that's a big, you know, big problem has happened. Or somebody, you know, once one time they had a truck that was going to the Congo to kind of carry stuff. Um, and um, they, they entrusted one of my uncles to go with the truck driver so that it wouldn't get, you know, uh, things wouldn't go missing. But even with that, you know, you get a phone call saying, oh, there's a problem with the truck and we have to fix it. Apparently there wasn't a problem. There was just some shenanigans going on. And, yeah. you know, I'm pretty sure we only as kids heard like 30 percent of what was going on. I'm sure there was a lot more. Um, but they were doing all this really for for us kids to, you know, for us to have a, a much better 
chance at life than 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 they did. Um, and eventually, they they actually got a building and started a school. Um, they were not educators, um, but they, they they had they got they were able to get this building, and, and there was some land around the building. And they decided, well, what should we do? They kind of, you know, went through all the different options, and ultimately decided we're we're going to start a school. Uh, okay, so what you know, how how do you start a school? Um, well, they had one room at this on this piece of land. So that year, they enrolled, I think, twenty kids in the first grade of school, and found some teachers and started teaching them. And uh, while they're doing that, they're building the next classroom. Um, from the fees that they're getting from these kids and you know their own investments. Um, and they basically were building for eight to 10 years till it became a full, I guess what you'd call an elementary school. So uh, there's seven grades of primary school in Zambia. So they, they built all the way up to seventh grade. Um, so from yeah. this one building, they built a school um, and that school now has been, is going strong and is one of the best performing schools in the, in the area they built it. And, you know, 300 kids every year go, go through that school. Um, and just to give you some, some context, um, um, the, the Zambian education system is based on, you progress based on um, doing a national exam. And um, every time you do a national exam, they, they reduce the number of people that go, go through to the next, the next stage. Um, so you have to you have to do well in the national exams, you know, to progress to secondary school and and, and so on. And the the grade seven national exam is is the is the the barrier between primary school and secondary school, or what you might call here elementary and uh, or middle school and high school. Um, and uh, in the region, in the area where my mom and dad built the school the pass rates for those exams is not that high. You know, I think some schools are okay with a 50% pass rate, mm -hmm. um, but they have had a 100% pass rate from that school ever since they started. Wow. Um, so their, their, their whole goal was not only are we, are we gonna build a school, but it's gonna be a high quality school. Um, and, you know, um, they were doing it with very minimal resources. So I have, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of respect respect for for what they've been able to build. Um, my dad my dad unfortunately passed away. Um, it's coming up to uh, it's coming up to ten years next year. Um, but by the time he passed away, they built the school and, um, and really set it on really good foundations. And my mom's been running it since. Well, maybe you have to uh, go back and ask your uncle about these shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you probably wouldn't tell me <laughs> it's always interesting to go back and get the the you know the second the second version yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so that you know this is incredible and i love i love hearing this and it's always interesting just to kind of i always kind of ask that question because i'm really interested in this you know concept of you know is entrepreneurship made or learn and, and just and the backgrounds of, 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 of successful people. So yeah, thank you. And, and yeah, sure. Okay. So you were, you arrived in, in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. What was that experience like? And, 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 and how, what, how'd you find school? Um, yeah, it was a big, big culture shock. Um, the first piece of culture shock was just how, 
neat and tidy everything was. So in, in Zambia growing up, um, there's, there's, there's some beauty. I'm not saying Zambia is chaotic, but there is, let me call it fluid. Um, so you, you don't plan too far into the future because things may change, right? And that is true anywhere. But I noticed much more of a, a much more certainty in planning when you're in the UK than when you're in Zambia. And, you know, simple things like, um, it, and, and Zambia's changed a lot since. And so this, this is probably not a, a great reflection on what Zambia is now. But at the time, when I, when I went to the UK, simple things like, um, if I see uh, an elevator and it's got a button to, to press for the elevator to come, when I'm in Zambia at the time, I don't know if that elevator is going to come. Um, and it, it kept surprising me in, when I was in the UK that there was this certainty that, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're at a, a, a traffic light and it says press here and you press there and the thing changes, um, you know, I was ready to like, okay, I'll, I'll press it, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll ready myself to cross when I, when, when I need to, because, you know, this thing might not be working. Um, so that was kind of a little bit of, uh, oh, okay. So this is a kind of a different way to kind of navigate the world. There's, there's, there's more, there's more certainty. And I think that reflects the, the maturity of the, the institutions, you know, the, 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 the British institutions are literally hundreds or thousands of years old even compared to the Zambian institutions, which were literally just being built. You know, Zambia as a country um, was, you know, barely 30 or 40 years old at the time. So um, literally a baby um, as far as you know, the institutions that, you know, for running a country. Um, so that, you know, that was one of the things that was uh, a bit of a, a shock. And then the second thing was um, going into class and um, I, was, I was used to in Zambia being a top student um, in class and, and getting to school at, at the University of Sheffield and finding that, no, I wasn't, I wasn't a top student, I was a student. Um, I think I eventually managed to work my way to being um, a, a, a good student, but never, never like the, you know, one of the top students. Um, so that was a little bit of a, a, a shock um, to find myself struggling to, um, to get concepts and the, the change of um, um, how, how school is done. There was a lot more autonomy. Um, and it's also, I guess, the difference between high school and university. You're kind of figuring things out yourself. So that was a bit of a shock. Um, initially, also just getting used to being in a different different country, different culture, people thought differently and spoke differently. Um, I was missing my family. Um, thankfully, there were a few other Zambian friends who were um, in Sheffield as well. So we, we hung out a lot together. And some, some British friends that just took me under their wings and, you know, we became good friends and we, we literally became family. So um, I started to spread my definition of, of family beyond, you know, my Zambian family back at home. And then what, what happens with the, you know, um, yeah, so I imagine, right, there's a couple of things I was, I was thinking is there's, there's kind of, you know, maybe feeling, you know, out of your depth a little bit. And I, I, mm -hmm. you know, 
I went and lived in the the US during high school. So not not too much of a cold shock, but definitely different than than Australia. Um, but that, but also an excitement with like, oh yeah, you know, this, yeah. This challenge will make me better, right? Yeah. And I imagine this is the first time you started to fall in love with, you know, getting getting uncomfortable, but knowing this is when I, where I'm growing, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, those 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 a lot a lot of excitement. I mean, um, you talk about life changing um, transitions. This, this, this was definitely it. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, I was super excited. I was there with my, my, my friend, uh, he was already my close friend in Zambia and we were, you know, we literally traveled together. Um, so we got on a plane. So this was, yeah. So this was my first time on a plane, um, was, was when I, when I went to, to go to, to, to the UK to study, and then we land and we get on a train and, you know, everything is just exciting and everything is new. So there was a lot, a lot of excitement. Um, we had a bit of a stipend. So, you know, we had some spending money. We could go buy new clothes and, you know, it was, it was fun too. You know, lots of fun. And, and then, and then, so, okay. So um, what happens to the dream of being a doctor or did you just kind of fall in love with the engineering side of things? Uh, never fell in love with engineering. Um, <laughs> never, never did. I, 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 I was able to do it. And I actually worked as an engineer for Shell um, for, for six years, which in my mind is uh, uh, six years too long. But on, <laughs> on one side and on the other side, it taught me a lot of great things. Um, um, great things about working in, in a kind of corporate culture, a lot of great things about, you know, how do you, how do you initiate projects and get, get um, buy-in for those projects and get them executed and so on. Um, so I learned a lot of things, but I also spent a lot of time doing a lot of soul searching because I, I think I was fundamentally unsatisfied with what I was doing with my life. Um, so, you know, one of the uh, one of the things my wife was reminding me about, because I, I met, I recently met the the son of a guy who wrote a book that I was like thumbing through and dog earing. The book is uh, uh, a book by Nick Bowles called What Color Is Your Parachute, which is about basically discovering what your strengths are, what, you know, what the world needs and and, and what can drive your your economic engine and and then and then going and doing that. So I spent lot of time trying to do that and um, I think through that I, I discovered that being a doctor for me was a means to an end it wasn't it wasn't the you know the the science and the you know the fact of being able to open people's bodies up and so on that that fascinated me I think what it what attracted me to it is that I can help people and i can help them in a very very tangible way and i would know when i've done that it was, um, it was actually the reason i also uh, you know reminded me of my my parent about a uh, question about the parents because it uh, sounds like something you know uh, you know you know i come from a greek background where it would have come from like you know the you know my grandparents gonna be a doctor or a lawyer <laughs> you know uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah my, my parents didn't didn't really um try to steer me one way or the other um i i, I think I, I 
I very I very quickly became pretty self-directed. Um, like even with school and stuff, I was just doing my own stuff. They never needed to, you know, encourage me or anything like that. So I felt there was a lot of trust to um, to go and figure out what you know what I was trying to do. I guess it also helps that you know my my choice of what I was going to do as to be a doctor. Maybe if I'd said, I love, I love music and I still do. If I'd said, I'm going to be a musician, maybe we would have had, we would have had conversations. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I was saying I wanted to be a doctor or doctor engineers. Like, oh, yeah, that's good. You know, <laughs> go for it, you know, do it. Um, yeah. And, you know, they, they, and they were very, very supportive with, with, with everything that I wanted to do. So, so what happens after school? How do we how do we end up in the US? And I'm, I don't want to skip anything important. So please, kind of just what happens after school? Yeah. So, so after school, um, I'm in the UK, and I'm trying to decide whether to return to Zambia or to stay in the UK. Um, oh, before before I graduated, my um, so there was a situation with my scholarship. Remember, I was sponsored by the mining mm-hmm. company. And that company had been, ownership had changed. So basically it used to be owned by the the government that sold the company to private owners. Um, And there was a little bit of a decision point about whether or not they would, you know, honor the the, the rest of the scholarship. This was, I think, in my second year. Um, Thankfully, they made the decision to honor the rest of the scholarship, but there was no requirement for me to return to work for the mines after I'd finished studying. So, you know, I was, uh, I was in, a, in this great position where I'd had a, a full ride scholarship to study. Um, and, you know, I, I had my chemical engineering degree and I didn't have to go work for the mine. So I had some decisions to make about what to do. And then also on the, on the personal side, um, I, had a, I had a girlfriend who um, I was planning to marry. We were planning to get married um, in England. She's English. Um, and, uh, so, you know, we had to decide, you know, where are we going to do this? Is it England? Is it Zambia? Is it somewhere else? Um, so lots of kind of big decisions to make. Um, but, and also at the same time, my, my UK visa was, was expiring. You know, I think it expires some like six months after, after you graduate. So, you know, I had to make some decisions if I was going to stay, I needed to get a job and get a visa that way. Or you know something like that. I didn't want to rush into getting married just to get the visa, so that was off the table for me. Um, so eventually, I I got a job in Zambia. Oh, um, one thing I didn't mention was while I was in in college, a little bit like my parents, because I little had a little bit of extra money. I was running a, a little side business in Zambia. Um, I was running it with with my brother and a couple of other guys, and what we were doing was um, importing computer parts because they were um, zero rated for tax, um, and then um, um, assembling the computers in Zambia and then selling them um, because the the tax on fully assembled computer rates uh, computers was was high. So um, we, we we basically played that arbitrage. So my, my calculation then was, well, I get a job in Zambia. It will help me kind of stay solvent uh, while we figure out this business and, you know, if we can grow this business. So I, I, got, a, I got a job with uh, one of the, the big five accountancy firms, PricewaterhouseCoopers, 
um, yeah. really to, to, to land in Zambia and figure out, you know, is this business going to work? Um, I quickly realized when I was there that the business wasn't going to go very far. Um, and I also knew I'm not an accountant and I'm not going to do audit for the rest of my life. Um, um, thankfully, Shell came calling. Um, I'd, I'd applied to Shell like a year before and uh, I'd forgotten about it because I thought, yeah, they're, they're, they're not going to, you know, nothing's going to happen. Um, they, they called and said, hey, do you want to do an interview? You know, you applied. I said, well, that was like a year ago. Um, I'm in Zambia now, so we'll have to do a phone interview. Um, so we did a phone interview and I was, you know, they wanted me to, to do a second interview. So I had to travel to, um, to the Netherlands to do that. Um, and so that whole process of getting a job at Shell took eight months. And right. that's the eight months during which I was working at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And it solved, it solved the problem for me and my girlfriend at the time, because then we knew, you know, we could be in the UK and we would get married there and, uh, and, and start our life there. Why, um, why interview in the Netherlands? I've got to ask. Well, Shell's Shell headquarters um, is, is, is in the Netherlands. Well, oh, the, right. the, the headquarters is in, is in London, but they have a lot of uh, um, operations in the Netherlands. Um, it's, uh, it was originally, it, it, it and still is, it was a, a, a joint venture between a, a British and a Dutch company. So there's, right. a, there's a lot of connection between the two. Got it. Got but, it. I, but I ended up working in the UK. And so then, so you, you got, it's funny how things work, right? And it's really interesting about that, you know, the, uh, the change in the scholarship bit with, um, with the mining company. All right. So you're in, you're in the UK, you're working for Shell, but you've started, the, you've st- obviously started to get this kind of entrepreneurial itch and, mm-hmm. and started your own, own ventures there. What happens next? So I'm working for Shell and I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do next? Um, so at this, you know, I guess if you fast forward kind of four or five years into my shell time, I'm really thinking, well, I, you know what, I really want to go back to Zambia and I don't know what I'll do there, but I feel like I've got, you know, I've got something to offer. So, um, I think this is what I'll work towards. Um, you know, I, I need to assemble the pieces that I need to, to be able to go back to Zambia and do something probably entrepreneurial. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, I decided I wanted to find something to do with government to do, um, because there's a high likelihood that I'll be doing some kind of government work. Um, so I actually left Shell and went and worked for the Ministry of Justice in, in the UK. Um, and this job was particularly specifically working for the prison service. So they had a, an energy energy program that they they they, they had launched, and um, it was a new government that had come in, and they they wanted to. Uh, it was basically they wanted to save a lot of money. So so my job, um, and I was working with another guy, a great guy uh, called Chris. Our job was to go around the the prisons in the UK, figure out what the opportunities are for energy savings. Um, and you'll be surprised how, you know, there were, there were a lot more than, you know, it wasn't just like turning, turning off the lights or something like that. You know, there was a lot of energy, energy consumption, um, and there was some energy production potential as well. So we'll assess all that across the nation and then pull that into one big project and 
do um, a kind of central procurement to bring down the cost of procurement of all those things. Um, the one thing I didn't know going into that job is we didn't really have our own budget for doing it. We had to secure the budget from the prison governors that we were talking to, which was a, a very uh, interesting exercise in, uh, uh, I guess, pulling blood out of a rock. <laughs> um, it was just really hard to, you know, to 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 justify to them that they should spend money um, on this um, when their their own budgets were already tight and. They had, they, you know, they had pretty much the same mandates as us. Hey, reduce your, your, your budget, your own budget by 30%. Um, so I actually ended up raising some external money. So this was my, you know, my first experience at, at you know, it's like there must be a way to finance this outside of what we're, um, what we're trying to do. So um, I just started looking around for, who might finance this? And I was told, no, you can't, you can't, you can't do that. This is government. You cannot bring external money into, into here. Um, but, but for some reason, I, I decided, well, there must be a way. And, um, and then I came across this organization that was, uh, it was quasi-government, but they had some money that they could invest in carbon reduction projects. So I was able to put together a proposal um, for them to invest $6 million into, into our project. Um, and we actually got that money. And that really like, like gave us the start that we needed to, to, to get this project off the ground. Um, and I was only there for a year. And I feel like, you know, that year was like super, super effective because, you know, we we're able to um, pull together this, this proposal. Um, we got the funding, and and at that point, I was already onto my next thing because I'd already I'd already started planning this by the time I was I was going there. I wanted to go to business school, and um, and business school was starting. Um, so this was two thousand nine. Um, so so summer of two thousand nine, and the, the the particular business school I was going to was a uh, an MBA in entrepreneurship. It was. Uh, accelerated MBA so I could do it in a year rather than two years um, we decided um, wanted to go with my family so minimizing the amount of time in school um, so that I could quickly get back into into the workforce um, so we were able to use a combination of our savings and a, a bit of a scholarship from from the school that that we were going to to be able to um, to afford to take a year out of uh, out of work and, and do this business school. Um, and then after business, so a year in Austin, Texas. And then after that, it was time to go to Zambia. Also, so we thought. Yeah. Um, and at that point where, you know, I'm applying for jobs in Zambia. Again, I wanted to land with something and then figure out what I was going to do. And I couldn't get a job in Zambia. I couldn't find something that worked. Um, it was actually quite a stressful time for me. Um, because I was also, you know, I was looking, I was looking in Zambia, but I was also thinking about, oh, maybe we could return to the U.S. Um, my job was still open for me in the U.K. Um, I was officially on sabbatical, um, and my boss, my my boss of the prison service, when I when I told him what I wanted to do, he said, "Make sure you come back, hey." Um, and I said, "Yeah, of course." 
um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but yeah, yeah. But by the time I'd gone through the business school, and, and they they also had a you know a very you know part of part of the the school's um, curriculum was a lot of kind of introspection on what you know what do you want to spend your life on, and it was clear to me that I, I wasn't going back to the prison service. Um, yeah, so looking for jobs in Zambia, but also like keeping my options open for going back to the UK. And also looking in the U.S. for opportunities, and it, it felt like a, like quite a big load on me, feeling quite stressful, feeling the time pressure to you know to figure something out. Um, and then one day, I had a I just had a conversation with my wife, and she 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 just suggested, "Hey, why don't why don't we just focus on like one thing? Why don't we just focus on going to Zambia? You know, let's let's rule out some things." You know, let's rule out going back to the UK. Let's rule out staying in the US and just focus on going to Zambia. And that by itself just took a huge load off, off me. And I felt like I had freedom to, to think because I think, you know, I wasn't actually thinking of, I, I think I was reacting with, with stress to um, the time pressure to do something before, you know, before my US visa ran out so that I knew where, where we were going as a family um, mm-hmm. before that happened. Um, and so if actually what, what, what eventually happened was um, somebody approached me. Um, so my, my business school, my class had chosen me to, to give the, the graduation speech. So I was talking about what I wanted to do um, after graduating, basically what the school had meant for me and what, you know, what, I was, what it was going to enable for me. So I was talking a lot about, you know, going, going back to Zambia and I really want to play a role in, you know, um, helping lift other people up. And uh, so somebody who was in the audience approached me and said, hey, I know you, you want to go to Zambia, but how about, you know, if you wanted to go to Tanzania or Kenya, would, would you be interested? Um, and uh, um, in my mind, I was like, oh, you're offering me a job? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I said, oh, let me think about it. You know? <laughs> and yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I needed to also talk to my wife about it. So we, we talked about it. And, uh, and you know, it's strange when it, it felt like the right thing. And uh, we, we literally went onto the laptop looked up the places that they had mentioned on, you know, in, on Google Maps. And there wasn't, you know, there wasn't that much to go on at the time because Google Maps was pretty new then. Um, and we decided we were going to do it. So... And who, who, um, was, who was this person, the mysterious person in the audience? This oh, this person in the audience was uh, the father of one of my, my, um, um, my classmates. And mm-hmm. he was the CFO of uh, an organization called the Henry M. Jackson Foundation. Um, and what the Henry M. Jackson Foundation does is it runs um, public health programs around the world. Um, a lot of them funded by money that the US um, military puts up for doing um, healthcare research and public health programs around the world. Um, so the origin is is military because um, the the military dis- discovered that whenever they went to a a place, they would um, um, they would be they would be decimated not by the 
the other military forces, but by the, the bugs that are in that area. So they started doing medical research um, to, to help the U.S. military um, kind of be able to you know, operate anywhere. But that becomes valuable you know, IP that you can use to actually help the local people kind of deal with some of those um, health, health, health problems. So, so they, were, they were running um, HIV programs. They were running influenza and malaria programs in Tanzania. Um, and they were working through partners and didn't have their own presence in the country. So I was going to establish um, their, their, their presence. So I was going to be their representative in country. So that was gonna, you know. So it was it was kind of a, a cultural translation role. So my my role was really to be kind of an in between, who understands their culture, but also understands a bit of you know the local culture enough to be able to to translate between them, um, which was interesting because you know I'm Zambian and uh, I was working in Tanzania, and uh, you know from afar they look similar, but you know they're different enough that there was a lot of cultural adaptation that I needed to do in Tanzania, first of which was learning the language. Um, so Swahili is what's spoken in Tanzania. I spoke uh, in Zambia, I spoke Bemba, which is a completely different language and a little bit of Nyanja, which is more similar to Bemba. Swahili has some similarity with, with Bemba because it's, um, they're both, they're, well, Bemba is a Bantu language. So the Bantu languages have, you know, some similar words that go across all the, all the Bantu languages. And Swahili has, uh, was a street language that's um, kind of a combination of uh, Bantu and um, Arabic and probably some Spanish influence as well. It was a trade language. So it kind of de developed on the streets when people were trading. Um, so I needed to learn the language because in Tanzania, folks did not, many folks did not speak English. Um, they, they, they were taught in Swahili from the beginning of school till you're like a uh, 14, 15 or 16. Um, so they're, you know, whereas in Zambia, you're taught in, in English right from the beginning of school. Um, so, you know, I, I was familiar with English and Bemba, but not, not with Swahili. And that, that was a problem, not being familiar with Swahili because um, people would kind of come at me and, you know, be speaking very fluently in Swahili and then discover that I can't speak Swahili. But I'm I look just like them, and uh, what's what's the problem? Why 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 don't you speak the language? Um, what's wrong with you? Um, so I quickly learned the language. I, I basically set myself a goal to to reach the five minute threshold, where if I have a conversation with somebody for five minutes before they discover that I'm not Tanzanian, that's enough that we build rapport, and they'll actually be impressed that I speak such a good Swahili, quote unquote. Um, rather than kind of disdained that I don't speak any, any other language. Um, so within about, I think, six to eight months, I was able to, to achieve that. Um, primarily by, you know, I, I got a teacher um, and he was, you know, he was a great, great teacher. And within a few weeks of him teaching, me, we discovered that the best way for me to learn was not to teach me all the vocabulary stuff because it was just overloading my brain. Um, the best way to learn was I'll just wake up every morning, 7 a.m. Every morning at 7 a.m. would have a, a Skype call for an hour and we would talk, would choose a topic and just start talking. So kind of learning the way kids learn. 
Um, yeah. and that was that was super fast. You know, it's the fastest way to learn the language, and it built my confidence. So, and I could go into conversations and start, you know, having you know talking more in Swahili, and uh, um, yeah, in, in, you know, in, in pretty quickly, I was I was I was fluent enough to do that, you know, to get past that five minute threshold. One of my proudest moments, you know, for being in Tanzania. Very interesting and. Okay, so we're in Tanzania. You didn't quite make it where where you where you wanted to go. How mm. do you? How does this evolve into? How do you end up in Silicon Valley? And, and great I, question. I want to get onto the the journey of of, of the Draper Venture Network oh, and the Kaufman Kaufman stuff, and particularly some of the um, the agencies. And I think it's going to uh, that that we were discussing, right? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, how do you how do you get from Tanzania to Silicon Valley? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that lines up. So while I was in Tanzania, uh, maybe before I say this, let me say when I when I was in business school, one of my least favorite modules was the venture capital module. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, <laughs> I did not understand why anybody would do that. Um, this seems it seemed stupid to me. It seemed a waste of money. Um, surely there's better ways to use money than to kind of put it into a ton of companies that are going to fail just so that one of them succeeds. Um, and then, you know, my friends were geeking out about post valuations and pre valuations and preference shares. And I was like, Oh, that has no, uh, I, it doesn't interest me. Um, so um, after business school, um, we were in Tanzania and uh, uh, an old friend of mine from high school, he was living in South Africa approaches me and he says, hey, I'm working on a, on a project and I'd, I'd like you to look at the white paper and give me some feedback. Um, so I say, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you some feedback. Um, so, you know, I read his white paper. It was a, a fund. He wanted to raise a venture fund focused on African entrepreneurs. Um, you know, the story at the time and, and, and increasingly so really was that, you know, um, Africa is rising and there's an opportunity to leapfrog, um, you know, several technologies to go to, you know, the mobile um, revolution and, and really build the economies based on the, you know, the, the, the new um, internet economy. Um, so, you know, compelling argument for um, building um, talent around um, building tech companies and building, you know, and bringing the capital to, 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 to fuel that. Um, so, you know, I gave him my feedback and my thoughts and, and, and he was like, no, 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 no. I want, I want to work with you on, on building this. And my initial thought was, no, this is venture capital. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not your guy. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a venture capital guy. Um, but, but, you know, this is someone I, I, I trust a lot. And, uh, you know, there, there are a few people in the world that I would, love to to work with and he was one of them and um i was i really had in mind the you know the jim collins um a mantra about you know who first and then what and uh no as as i count on on one hand who are my who's that i would love to work with he was one of them so i figured well well let's 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 go with this and let's see where it goes so Mm -hmm. we spent a good a good two years kind of 
strategizing about this and learning more about the industry and talking about what you know how we would shape it and where we where where we would be and so on. And we, you know we were starting to form a strategy around how you know what we what we we're going to do. Um, and uh, you know it, it quickly became apparent you know as we had conversations with folks um, and there were there weren't that many people doing venture in at least outside of like South Africa and maybe Kenya a little bit. Um, so it was very early in the, in the very early days as far as venture capital was concerned. And we, we, we realized, well, we need, we need some kind of track record in the industry. So, you know, if this is a long-term play, why don't we, why don't we go get that experience that we need? Um, so that's what started me looking at, you know, what are, what are the options here? What, what can we do? Um, I came across the Kaufman Fellows program. Um, I think one of the people that I talked to mentioned the program said, yeah, this is a good way for you to kind of, you know, get plugged into the ecosystem. And at, the, at that time, the Kaufman Fellows program had a program for folks who were not in the industry yet looking to get into the industry. Um, and the deal was, if you're accepted into that program, you have six months or 18 months to to find a firm to work with um, and then start the program. Um, so that, that, that typically was the, the bottleneck. I think a, 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 you know, it was getting increasingly harder and harder to, to be able to say, hey, I'm a Kaufman fellow, can I work with your firm? Because I think by then the dynamics have, had changed in terms of you know, the talent um, supply demand equation had changed from an oversupply of talent. Whereas when the Kaufman Fellows Program had started, it was, uh, um, you know, it really played into there was a, there was a low supply of talent, and it was, it was trying to attract people into into venture capital. Um, so I was talking to to folks about, hey, look, I've been accepted into the Kaufman Fellows Program. Um, you know, do you have any any positions and so on? And uh, typically, the answer was no. Um, and then uh, when I approached the Kaufman, uh, the, the the Draper. Uh, network and uh, uh, initially talked with Gabe Turner. Have you met Gabe? No. Okay. So Gabe Gabe had just joined um, to to spin out the, the 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 Draper Network from DFJ Mother to make it its own independent entity. So I spoke with him about, um, hey, you know, you've got a, a big global network, but you don't have anything in Africa. What would it look like to do something together in in Africa? And um, he, he was like, well, you know, we're, I think it will be interesting to explore this. We're um, looking at uh, several other areas where, you know, that are currently priority for us. Let's keep the conversation going. And that's kind of where the conversation ended then. And, uh, um, but I, I decided, well, you know, we, we've got to keep this conversation going for real. So when I was on my plane back, I was, I was still in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam, on my plane back to, plane ride back to, to Tanzania, I wrote, I wrote him a one pager. I said, Hey, whenever you come, you think of coming to, um, to Africa, here are some things to think about, you know, what, you know, what the, where, where you find talent and, you know, what are the good locations are, what are the proxies you're looking for to determine, you know, where, where, to, where to have a good fund and so on. Um, and, and, and I wrote this just to kind of one, be helpful, but also like if they, if they ever decide to come to Africa, he would remember to kind of pull that out and, you know, call me. Um, but uh, that, can I can I ask it? Because just like 
sometimes you just got a feeling this is the one, right? It, was it just a, was there a gut feeling that this was something was going to happen with the Draper network? Um, I had, I, I had a good feeling about Gabe when I met him, we had a good, you know, good rapport, like straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, at, at this point I hadn't met Tim yet. Um, but you know, we, Gabe and I had a, had a good rapport. I don't think I had the gut feeling at that point. Um, if, if there was, I, I wasn't feeling it, but I was acting on it maybe with mm-hmm. writing this note. Cause, oh yeah, here's the, here's the other thing. Like when I went to, when I, when I was visiting Silicon Valley that week, so I had a number of meetings and I had, um, I decided I would take these little, um, Tanzanian clay cups they're really beautiful they're kind of made at the local made by locals and they're sold at the market so i'd taken like five or six of them and i I was going to give them as gifts to people um i i came back with four of them and i I gave two and i I gave them basically to people that i felt during that visit that i I had some rapport with um Mm -hmm. and gabe was one of them so you know so when 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 he um he wrote, he wrote, he wrote, he wrote me back. He said, oh, thank you so much for your gift. It's, you know, I've put it on my shelf and it just looks, looks beautiful. And, you know, thanks for the, thanks for the, uh, the one pager. It's you know, really well thought through and really well written. Um, hey, I forgot to mention while, when we met, we're, we're trying to hire somebody to come join our team to, um, um, to run our, our corporate practice that we're building here. Um, I know you're in Tanzania and this is, you know, this would be a big move, but would you be interested? Because, you know, this, 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 could, this could be your, you know, your, your, your way into kind of the venture, venture space. Um, so, so, you know, when I said I, you know, I didn't have the gut feeling at the time, my, my initial response was no, because I'm building the Africa thing. So mm-hmm. um, this could be a distraction, right? Yeah. Um, but I, 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 at least I had enough sense to talk to several advisors and everyone was like, yeah, you should do this. This is, yeah. this is a good opportunity. This is a great opportunity. You should definitely do this. Um, I guess in their heads, they were thinking, are you stupid? Isn't this what you want? Kind of thing. Um, but you know, sometimes you, you just don't know. And, and that's why mm-hmm. I guess it's good to have advisors who, who kind of see a bit less, uh, a bit more dispassionately than than you see, especially when you're when you're, when you're in the situation. Sometimes you can get tunnel vision. And um, who, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna sidetrack for a little bit here because I'm just curious as to um, do you still have advisors? Do you still you know count on mentors even oh, today? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I feel like I have three or four advisors at any one time. Mm-hmm. And, and different people play different roles. Um, you know, there are people that kind of um, help me to, um, to stay, stay centered and remember who I am. And there are people who help me to expand my vision. And then there are people that I, I talk to to kind of help me think through like the business of of what, what, what I'm doing or trying to do and whether that makes sense because they, you know, they're very practical. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, I rely a lot on, on, on advisors. I think, I think, it, I think it's, yeah, I, I can't, I can't see how I could, 
uh, how how I could operate without having 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 these people. I feel like they're you know they're they're, they're my team, mm-hmm. um, and and really really helped me to um, um, to make to make great decisions and you know um, and and also just to to feel like you know sometimes when you when you're leading you kind of feel lonely like like you're you're on a lone path and. And and these guys help me feel like no, I'm I'm not alone. You know, I, I have I have people have my back. Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious. You know, I just kind of, um, and I guess it just kind of evolves. I mean, I think um, right because it's just sometimes, like you said, alone is probably a good word because sometimes you feel like you're tracking into completely uncharted territory. But there's still yeah. some mm-hmm. still some people that have done something similar, or at least yeah. can have the comfort of, of knowing that they've also been in that unknown territory. Yeah. As yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. There's a good framework that I saw um, and it's not necessarily how I've done it, but I like the framework. They were saying you should have an, a plus, an equal and a minus um, at, at any one time. A plus is somebody who's ahead of you, who you can learn from. Um, an equal is somebody who's around about the same, you know, you're, you're kind of on the same journey and you, you can, you can, you, you can spur each other on, but you can also kind of, uh, learn from each other. You can empathize with each other's journey. Um, and then a minus is somebody who's behind you that you can teach the stuff that you're learning. Um, and I re- I really like, like that framework. That's, yeah, that's a great one. I'm going to probably yeah. use that. As my soundbite here, buddy. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Go for it. Uh, I have to say, it, it's not me that said it, but um, but I really like that framework. That's great. And, and so, like, and I guess this is also helps become a position for when you can, you know, um, advocate advocate. You know, the 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 African technology and ecosystem that you were trying to do anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and it's 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 allowed me to 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 do more, um, and there's still more that I want to do um, on on the African continent. But it opens up opportunities that I you know I I can't even imagine to have had if I was you know simply running a venture fund, which would have been which would have been great. But um, I think it's it's opening up more opportunities to to influence at a at a higher level. Um, and, and, and ultimately that fund may still happen, but it may take a different form. It may be that, you know, with the Draper Venture Network, we can, you know, fund or front a fund started by somebody else. And, you know, I have a role in that. Um, ultimately the mission is not me. It's, it's, it's what we do on the African continent to help entrepreneurs there. Absolutely. So just, just as a kind of, uh, you know, the, the 30 second pitch of, of the Draper Venture Network and let me see how I'm doing. We have, you know, you kind of, the, the core fund or the, you know, the kind of the flagship fund of Draper Associates there in Silicon Valley. And then you've got these big funds that are, that are partners of the network, Draper Spree, Draper Dragon um, and, and so on around the world. And then you've kind of got these smaller funds, uh, or, or your beta funds, I think, you know, how, how referred to them. Um, that kind of get connected and then uh, are run by you. How's my pitch? <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 a good pitch. Um, I think I would um, I would talk more about the funds together as 
you know, as 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 partners, because really um, the what you call the Deviant Beta, or what we're now calling Deviant Seed, was a, a kind of a more recent addition to the funds, um, and it was a, kind of an evolution. Um, with the network started primarily with uh, um, funds that are at a you know writing their first check at Series A. And uh, we realized that, you know, we, we enhanced the network by bringing in funds that are writing more seed checks because there's deal flow to come from there and there's, you know, potential mentorship between fund managers. Um, and also, you know, that's where a lot of the growth is as far as um, uh, um, venture capital managers. There, there's just been, an, an, you know, a huge proliferation of, new fund managers that are doing micro funds and, and, and seed funds. Um, so we, we do ourselves a disservice if we're not present there and finding the best fund managers in that, in that, in that demographic. Absolutely. And so maybe I should also add is that then there's this ability to kind of um, share and know, you know, knowledge sharing and know what's on in different ecosystems that, that can yeah. be shared throughout the network, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what what we what we do uh, pre-COVID is uh, every year we gather all the all the fund partners in a different part of the world. In fact, the last gathering happened in India just as COVID was breaking out. It was literally the last the last possible time you could travel um, was the last the last gathering. Um, and the idea is really like get the fund managers together. In a, in a new environment, they're learning an ecosystem. One of, the, one of the teams is really showing them around that ecosystem, dedicate some of the time to kind of sharing some of the you know, nuts and bolts of the business. You know, how are you doing this? How are you doing that? What problems are you finding? Um, but the whole idea is we're really building a strong community among the fund managers so that at any point in time after that, you know, you, they can pick up the phone and talk to each other about, you know, hey, here's a company I'm, I'm, I'm investing in. I think, you know, you know when we met, this, you said you might you know, invest in something like this and, you know, be able to do deals together. Um, so, you know, that's a, a, a strong part of what, what we do. And uh, um, in addition to the spring gatherings, we'd also do a, a large gathering in the fall. And that one is always in, has always been in Silicon Valley. Um, where, you know, not only do we bring the fund partners together, but we also bring portfolio companies, we bring corporations, and in some years we also bring LPs. So then you have, you know, the full circle of the, the ecosystem really kind of getting together and, and mingling and interacting. You know, LPs want to do direct investments in companies, so they get to meet some of the companies that, you know, their funds have been investing in. Funds might be able to share LPs that, you know, are investing in different regions. Um, so, you know, there's a, just a lot of crossover, you know, corporations want to work with, you know, um, great startups. So they, they, they're getting to meet those startups and we, we do, a, a, you know, a, a, a lot of curation to, um, to ensure that the corporations are meeting the right startups and, you know, the startups go away really happy with, you know, the business development that they've been able to do in a very short period of time. And then, look, I mean, what's really interesting, you know, to me and, and, and something I wanted to kind of chat with you about is this kind of this, this really unique kind of macro level view you have, right? And I think mm -hmm. you almost can think of it as 
I mean, I guess it's almost regional, right? You can kind of see, you know, what what pockets of activity are happening because there's so many companies here popping up in APAC or whatever, or, you know, Africa has has this emergence in blockchain or whatever. What is What are some of the things that are really exciting you at, at the moment? So what's what's exciting me are some of the the big trends, um, and you know we're 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 reimagining uh, you know what the future looks like for for us as as, as a network, and um, you know while I can't go into like you know so the specific sure. details, I can I can kind of talk about some of the themes that we've defined as going to be important for the next 15, 20 years. Um, and we basically decided to find four, four themes and, you know, it's the future of work and play. So how we spend our time. So this one's, you know, top of mind for everybody. COVID just happened and people have realized um, there are different ways of working that um, we're moving into. You know, the, the Internet revolution happened without us really changing the way we work. You know, when the Industrial Revolution happened, um, people really changed the way they worked, you know, moving from an agrarian to um, an industrial um, existence and, you know, being able to live in cities and being able to, you know, do, you know, put in an eight hour shift every day. So society really kind of transformed itself around that. Um, but when the Internet revolution happened, we didn't really change to, to, to suit that because now we don't need to all be in the same city all the time um, but COVID kind of was a forcing function for for changing that so um, how we spend our time you know really we think is changing a lot and uh, and this COVID time has been a, a little microcosm of some of the possibility of that so we think there, there's lots of innovation to come to come in that area and we think there's also a, a merging of work and play and how you organize your time around work and play and how work can be more playful as well. And that's something I personally care about. I, I play soccer, I'm a musician. Um, and to me, those things really enhance my work. And sometimes, you know, especially during COVID, it's been helpful um, to be able to have a block of time, you know, half an hour in the middle of the day where I can go pick up my guitar and just play and it completely changes my state so that when I do go into that meeting, I'm in a completely different place to where I would have been if I didn't have that option because, you know, I drove to the office and maybe I felt self-conscious about, you know, having a guitar in there and playing because people would peek in and say, well, you're not working. Um, but at home, I could do that. Um, why is, why yeah. is Sid so pumped up for these meetings? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. His secret weapon is a, a six-stringed <laughs> instrument. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think there's you know there's a lot of uh, um, changes to come there. So that's that's one area, um, and I probably went on too long on that one area. But you know, there's three other areas. Um, the the other three areas: uh, future of finance and commerce. Um, you know, that's that's obvious from what's happening with uh, with blockchain with uh, um, distributed autonomous organizations with NFTs, um, that commerce is changing the way we transact and the way we, we pay for the things that 
that we 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 want um, and have is 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 changing. So that's and that's an area that we've, we've historically um, invested a lot in as a as, as a network. Um, so that's 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 the second area. The third is the future of human life. So here we're thinking about healthcare. We're thinking about wellness, which with with COVID has also come to the fore. It's been an issue for a long time, but I think it's become it's come more to the fore because of COVID. We're thinking of um, age tech. Um, it's an underinvested area. It's an area that you know um, um, is becoming more and more important for as as people live longer and longer lives, um, and an area that's you know ripe for innovation. And we think there'll be you know a lot of innovation in that space. Um, so that's the future of human life. And uh, the last one is what we're calling the future of society. And this is the kind of more bigger things. So if you're thinking here about energy, transportation, supply chain logistics, um, and included in here is the, the real kind of the big one, which is, you know, climate change and sustainability. Um, so, the, you know, the future of society is, I guess, uh, more aligned with what the UN is thinking about when they, you know, when, when, they, when they talk about sustainable development goals. Um, and again, we think this is a, an area that's, that's ripe for, for, for innovation. So those are the four themes that we've defined and where, you know, we're organizing around. Um, and it's, you know, it's exciting times, um, but, you know, we also understand there's, there's, lots, there's, there's lots to do um, across the globe to kind of solve some of these big problems that we have and, and we want to play a role. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think on that one, it must be very exciting just to meet, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, these companies coming through that are helping change the world, you know, is, is, is technology kind of an entrepreneurship still at the center of, of it all? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For us, that's, that's been uh, the, the, the big rally and cry that, you know, entrepreneurship is, is what is changing what is changing the world? You know, when we think about you know, job creation, um, entrepreneurs create five times more jobs than than, than big companies, um, and increasingly, um, we're going to see more people become entrepreneurs. They're not necessarily technology entrepreneurs, but um, even even technology entrepreneurs, um, and really, you know, the the big corporations are necessary, and they will continue to be. To be necessary, um, and they, they they play a very very important role in terms of being able to to scale what the entrepreneurs create. Um, um, but you know, and it's it's symbiotic. But but we just truly believe that you know entrepreneurs are are the lifeblood for any 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 growing economy. If you want growth in an economy, you have to you have to grow entrepreneurship in that economy. Absolutely. And then I think this is probably a great segue to the kind of the enterprise stuff. I know you work with a lot of big corporates, big enterprise, and, you know, there's so many, you know, venture arms, and, 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 uh, you know, everyone has a corporate venture capital firm. Is that, is that kind of, do you see enterprise kind of catching up and, and, and making a play for, you know, I guess, supporting the entrepreneurial ecosystem and kind of getting more involved and then having these, I guess going through these big transformations themselves. Yeah, it's. I think it's. It's a bit of both. 
Um, so we, we, you know, we work with um, a lot of large corporations that have done a lot to, um, to answer the call to, um, to be more um, integrated, if you, if you like, with, uh, with, the, with the technology innovation ecosystem. Um, and they have to answer it, the call from their own um, self-interested perspective. Um, you know, they're, they're answering the, the innovator's dilemma because they, they, they need to continue to execute on what they're doing and doing well. That's, you know, that's how they, they maintain and grow their market share. But they also need to manage their risk because if they just do that, um, they, they don't know what's around the corner that's going to completely decimate what they're doing. So they continually need to, um, to innovate. So they have, they have this dual problem of, you know, um, um, executing means you have to focus, it's convergent. Um, and uh, um, innovating means you have to be divergent. Um, so they have to figure out how, how best to be both. And it's, 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 it's challenging. It's, it's, it's really hard to, to, to do both. Um, when you're, when you're a, a young startup, um, you, you have to focus, but you have way more leeway to, to be divergent and, and try different things and fail at different things. And um, the stakes for you know, billion dollar organizations, if they fail at something, are really, really high. Um, so you know, managing that, that, that conflict is, 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 is super important. And, you know, I, I see some organizations that are doing it well, whether that's through having a very strong internal engine that um, brings the startups in, is able to test and iterate very quickly within that, you know, internal engine, and then um, um, integrate them into the right part of the organization, um, or having, you know, external skunk works that, you know, work on things and, if they become things, they spin off into, into businesses and different businesses will have different, different strategies. Um, you know, we see, we've seen the growth in uh, corporate venture, uh, venture capital, just a lot of investing. I think the, the last that I saw was something like 35% of all venture deals have um, um, corporate investors in them. Um, wow. So, you know, that's, you know, there's been huge growth. I think now there are about a thousand CVCs around the world. Um, which wasn't the case even, you know, six or seven years ago. Um, so there's, there's been a lot of growth, but I think there's a lot of uh, challenges as well with corporations trying to figure out how do we, how do, we do this um, and not just be doing what, you know, what everyone else is doing, um, but we, we're actually effectively, you know, you know changing, changing the trajectory of the company by, um, by taking advantage of um, the technology innovations. Absolutely. Sid, thank you very much for joining me today. Loved having the conversation, loved hearing your journey and um, particularly love this, this, the, 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 the venture capital stuff here at the end. Um, what, what, what's a, what's a, when should people get in touch? Um, when does it make sense? Um, so right now I'm, I'm talking to um, corporations that are, are serious about um, integrating with the technology ecosystem um, in, a, in, a, in a fundamental way. And, you know, especially the four areas that I mentioned, the future of work and play, 
the future of finance and commerce, the future of human life and the future of uh, society. Um, you know, where, where, as we reimagine what we're doing, we would love to partner with, with folks that are really kind of forward looking and, uh, and wanting to, um, to make significant change um, in partnership with others. We really believe in a very collaborative approach. Um, so, you know, um, if, 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 if any of those folks want to um, get in touch, um, do you have show notes? Or should I'll I just? Yeah, uh, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I can I can share my my email address and share it share it in the, in the show notes and you know, feel free to to reach out directly to me. Um, happy to to have that chat. Thank you very much, Sid. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks, buddy. Thank you so much, Chris. Much appreciated. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.